Hello and welcome to a special panel edition of Women with Balls, sponsored by Lloyd's Banking Group. The past year has served as a reminder of how quickly one's personal circumstances can change. The pandemic has seen millions put on furlough, others out of work and successful businesses turned on their heads. In uncertain times such as Lee's, financial resilience is more important than ever. Financial resilience is defined by the ONS as the ability to cope financially when faced with a sudden fall in income or unavoidable rise in expenditure. But while savings for some Brits have surged during the pandemic, and the Bank of England regularly tells us about this, it's not been the case for everyone. COVID has been attributed for rising levels of financial anxiety. 4.2 million more people now say they frequently run out of money before the end of the week or month. Meanwhile, 41% of UK households could not last three months without their main source of income. Women and younger people are among the groups who tend to be the worst affected. So how should we get match fit? And if you are in a bad place, what are the best steps? Is it time to start having some on-the-surface embarrassing conversations about our personal finances? To discuss this, I am joined by Tracy Crouch, Conservative MP and former Minister for Sport, Civil Society and Loneliness, who has also been a leading campaigner on gambling reform, Bridget Phillipson, Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, and Nicola Bannister, Lloyds Banking Group's Customer Financial Assistant Effectiveness Director in Retail, who also leads a specialist team supporting customers who are experiencing financial difficulty. So many thanks for joining me today, everyone. I suppose to kick off the conversation, Nicola, when we're, I mean, we're hearing more and more these days about financial resilience. So what does that phrase mean in a nutshell? We've got the official definition, but what are we talking about? Yeah, so financial resilience is really how resilient are your finances? How able are they to withstand a shock or an impact? And really, it's part of something much broader, which is our financial health. We think about our physical health and we think about our mental health and we look after those. We think about what we feed ourselves. We think about diets. We think about going to the gym. But actually, we need to think about our finances in the same way. Do you know where all your savings are? Do you know where all your borrowing is? Do you know what rate it's on? Is it really set up the right way for you? Are you planning for the future in the best way? These are all things, if we think about and understand our financial health really well, we'll be better set up to manage those shocks and impacts that can happen. And they can happen throughout your life. They could be one-off things like a divorce or a bereavement, or they could be longer term, like, for example, losing your job, reduced income, suddenly becoming a carer. So having something set aside so that you're set up for those things that just happen throughout life naturally is really important. And Bridget, Labour have done lots of campaigning on this, but I suppose when it comes to the pandemic, it seems to me at least a lot of people probably thought they were in quite a financially safe place, have suddenly realised that actually things can move very quickly. Is that your reading? I mean, going into the pandemic, a quarter of UK households had less than £100 in the bank to begin with. So a lot of people didn't have that financial resilience or any money put aside in the event that something happened. And we know that 3.6 million Britons are also in insecure work. So whilst I entirely agree with everything Nicola said about the importance of discussing this issue, it's just more difficult for a lot of people to actually build up any kind of savings in the event that they need it for a rainy day. And I think what's also been exposed during the pandemic is the degree to which whilst the government did put in place schemes to support people while businesses were closed and while there were big restrictions in place, many people fell through the cracks of that. There are lots of people that haven't been eligible for government support. I think it's also exposed some very real challenges about the nature of our social security system and I know from lots of constituents that I've spoken to, they'd imagine that at the time of real need, they would find a security system that was there for them and was able to support them. And actually, 
then are often not eligible. And I think there are big questions there about how we change a lot of those structures and systems that government operates in the event that this kind of uh, incident ever happens again. Tracy, do you agree with that? I do, actually. And and to what Nicola was saying as well. I mean, I think the thing is, is that we have spoken across party for a number of years, certainly the near 11 years that I've been in Parliament about financial resilience and about the need to have a better understanding of financial health checks. But it does sometimes feel like it is a bunch of middle class, you know, well-paid politicians talking to people about what they should be doing rather than having a proper understanding of the reality of life. And I think Bridget is quite right that actually the, the pandemic has shone a spotlight on some of the really stark things around people's finances. And, you know, just because we have savings and everything else, you know, it's sort of kind of we don't understand why others don't. And I think if you represent a constituency like mine, which does have two parts to it, one that is actually very deprived and the other that is slightly more affluent, then you do get a good understanding of how people really follow things like food price changes. And, you know, I remember having a conversation when I was lotteries minister about some of the lottery investment in Chatham. And at the end, I said, and so don't forget to play the lottery. And a lady said to me, oh, I haven't played the lottery since it went to two pounds. She said, did you know that the price of bread has gone up this week by X pence? And actually, we forget sometimes that people are watching every single penny. Nicola, when it comes to the pandemic, I mentioned at the beginning that you're leading this team looking into our experience of financial resilience. So what are you finding that people are struggling with the most when it comes to that COVID effect? Yeah, so I think what we've seen over the course of the pandemic is people reaching out for the payment holidays. So people not really sure about what's going to happen to them, people really worrying about the impact of that. So, you know, we've handed out 1.3 million payment holidays and sort of help people access savings accounts that will be otherwise locked down. And we've also sort of supplied interest-free overdrafts and looked at how we can help people coming off those sorts of arrangements at the end and make sure that they get themselves set up for kind of emerging out of lockdown. But we know that kind of um, women in particular as well are are suffering as a result of this. So more part-time workers in the UK are women, about 75%. And we know that women um, are more likely to have been furloughed. And we know that they're more likely to have worked in the impacted sectors. You add that on top of the existing gender pay gap. And what our own research tells us from Scottish widows is that women need to work another 37 years to get the same amount of pension as a man. And I think we, we, you you can definitely see that as a result of this pandemic, Women are going to be struggling more at the end of it. And they've also borne the brunt of childcare. You know, they're telling us around kind of trying to take on additional jobs. If they've lost their job, trying to get additional part-time jobs around those extra owners as a childcare and household that sit with women. That's been a real challenge. And for those that have found jobs, listening to a customer the other day who was talking about they got an offer of a new job, but then trying to get onboarded and start that new job sort of virtually is taking companies longer to do. So even when somebody's got a new job lined up, it takes them slightly longer to start. And that's just exacerbating this further for them. Bridget, Nicola makes a point about how this particularly can affect women or, or disadvantage. We've had research by Progeny suggesting women are more likely to work in sectors hardest hit by COVID-19 and therefore to experience loss of employment and income. So are we seeing an exacerbation of problems that already exist? I mean, I'm really concerned about the impact of the pandemic on women and their role in the workplace and that economic impact. I mean, we, we know that women are more likely to have been furloughed, more likely to have lost their jobs. And where children have been at home for periods, uh, whilst many fathers are stepping up and doing their fair share, it's still women that tend to carry that additional responsibility for childcare. Many nurseries, of course, 
are really struggling too. You know, they've faced a big reduction in the numbers of children going there. So we need to make sure that we have that viable childcare sector for women, particularly for women returning to work. But I'm really concerned about the longer term challenges that this poses. And it is absolutely essential. Um, I think that the government considers the differential impact between men and women. We should consider these in the policy choices that we're making. And Nicola, I suppose just briefly, when it comes to, I suppose, people who are suddenly experiencing these problems, a fall in terms of income, perhaps they have to be spending more on certain things, whether it's cost of living. What are some of the potential pitfalls that people can fall into at that point? Because there can be lots of outlets which suggest uh, they're here to help, whether that is, you know, payday loan or, or other things. So what are the things that can actually worsen this for, for a household or an individual? Well, I think what's really important to emphasise is the need to talk about it and talk about struggling. So back in 2019, Lloyds ran the M-word campaign and we actually had to call it that, the M-word, because money is not something we easily talk about. And the research through that showed that kind of money's more taboo than sex. Parents will talk to their children about kind of the birds and the bees, but they won't go and talk to them about money. And the emotional impact that has on families and relationships is huge. We found that one in four people lie to their friends and their family about money and one in 10 actually lie to their partner about the state of their finances. What we need to encourage people to do is to talk about debt, to talk about what they're going through. And a lot of people don't even understand that there's free debt advice to go to. So there are great companies like PayPlan, like StepChange, who are there to help you for free, who if you've got debt across a number of providers, is somebody great to go and talk to because they can kind of then talk to everybody for you, whether that's a utility company or a bank, whoever. But more importantly, sort of one in three people think that you only should talk to your bank when you've missed a payment. And that's absolutely wrong. We can help you way before you end up in trouble. We can help you with sort of budgeting tools. We can help you with debt advice referrals. But we can help people kind of plan for when that kind of event hits that they're worried about. So for me, I think the most important thing is to talk about it and reach out for help and not try and bottle it all up. And Tracy, let's talk about that because I was about to say you're a rarity in the comments, but perhaps on Nicola's comments in the country, because you've been quite open about previous personal struggles you've had with finance, talking about debt racked up from you know your time at uni and, and, and after. Can you talk us a bit through that and why you made that decision to talk about it and was, was that a difficult one? Well, actually, I was a Lloyds Bank customer and it was Lloyds who effectively saved me from myself. I had moved from university to become a researcher Uh, in Parliament. I was being paid £7,000 in 1996 to be a researcher, but I was living with a couple of people who worked in the city and and basically I was living their lifestyle, but through a parliamentary researcher salary and, you know, very quickly got myself into quite a significant amount of debt and particularly on things like store cards where, you know, I wanted all the latest outfits and everything else, but didn't have the means to pay for them. And it was actually thanks to my bank manager at Lloyd's who effectively called me in and cut up all my cards in front of me, um, gave me a loan to pay off all my debts and then put me back on a sort of kind of a proper repayment programme. And it took me nearly 10 years to pay that off. But it was because of that that I now am very conscious about money, albeit I'm conscious about my current financial affairs What I'm less good at is about planning for the future. And I think that is a confidence thing for many women. But in terms of do we need to talk about money? Yes, we need to talk about it more. Nicola's quite right that we we need to make sure that we are having proper financial education in schools, particularly as actually, you know, youngsters do have the, the ability to 
buy and sell things off the internet through you know various cards and accounts that they can have now and if you've got kids going on depop or whatever it's called debop just showing the fact that i'm a tory mp then you know you you want them to understand you know the the buying and selling uh, around these things And, and i don't think there's any formal education around it Bridget, do you agree with that, that, that we perhaps do need to have a more proactive role in educating people when they're growing up and also after about how these things already work? I mean, a credit card can be a very good thing. It certainly helps your credit rating. But to a lot of people, it's quite a scary thing to have at the same time, because we do hear all these stories of, of how it can go wrong. I think it is really important to talk about it. And, you know, that stigma shouldn't be there. It is. But I think the more we talk about it, the, the easier it becomes. I kind of, I suppose, go back to the point earlier, which is, you know, for a lot of people, life is pretty hard at the moment and has been for some time. I think there are steps that we can take as individuals, but there are also wider collective action that needs to happen, not least from government, around making sure that people have just got enough money to provide for their families. And for too many families, they get to the end of the week and there's nothing there and there's no food in the cupboard. And, you know, borrowing money is not an option because you're not in a position to pay it back. So I think there are bigger structural challenges, whether that's insecure work, the fact that a lot of work hasn't doesn't pay as well as it should. The problems in the social security system that I think could be resolved that would make life a lot more straightforward for a lot of families. Tracy, what do you say to that? Well, I would say just from a sort of kind of a political defence position that you know, the Conservative government over the course of the last 10, nearly 11 years, you know, has increased the national minimum wage has introduced a living wage and and so on and and you know i and there has been some significant social security reforms in order to try and make sure that people are encouraged to work where they can but that said i do think that there are things that we could still do to support people i mean we could be for example looking more into credit unions and the expansion of credit unions making sure that people understand that actually going off to get a sofa from Bright House is potentially actually more expensive than talking to the bank and getting a short-term loan for a sofa from a normal high street store and so on. And I, 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 I just don't think we've got the message out there just yet that there are other alternative ways of paying for things rather than what turns out to be far more expensive for the customer. And Nicola, on that, I mean, we're talking about how clearly, the, as Bridget points out, government has a big role in this. But I thought I wanted on an industry level, what role do you think industry should be playing in you know, addressing some of the issues we just talked about? I think we need to, to work together. And I think, you know, there's some good examples of that happening at the moment. So, you know, we, we can partner with kind of charities and specialist advisors. So, so in Lloyds, we work a lot with Mental Health UK and with Surviving Economic Abuse, which is a great charity, which helps people struggling with their finances as a result of that type of abuse. But then you've got cross-industry initiatives. So, you know, that the what's frequently known as breathing space is due to launch imminently. It was sort of days away, which will give people kind of breathing space, space from their debt for that kind of 60 days or or longer term, um, sort of almost unending if, if it's driven by sort of a mental health reason, which will be kind of, you know, we've all kind of signed up to. And then there's also the things that we can do around kind of working in partnership as part of best practice code. So the inclusive economy partnership, we've just signed up to to their code of best practice around debt collection and recoveries, because that's driving to create greater consistency amongst different companies where people are, may have debts with to make sure that kind of customers have a sort of a consistent experience and kind of know what to expect. I also think just on top of that, that it is about working in partnership with different parts of society, people who have a way into having discussions with people or may even 
receive you know the information voluntarily from that person so for example gps you know play an exceptionally important role in this because there is absolutely no doubt and and i do speak from experience that getting yourself into debt does create enormous anxiety and that in turn can uh, be the cause of ill health and so it's likely that you will end up um, at your gps at some point so being able to have that conversation and the gp be able to pass you to the social prescribers who thankfully are becoming more and more common in our practices and then them in turn being able to signpost them to the right people i think is an exceptionally important part of the process now we're talking about how women can be particularly disadvantaged and one thing is tracy i know you've obviously done a lot of work in bringing regulation against gambling companies but i wondered in, in terms of the including gambling but in terms of other schemes i mean one thing for example retailers opening again as a roadmap shows us a way hopefully out of the lockdowns and um, but in the meantime there's been plenty of online sales and one you get certain companies like Klarna which will divide up what you can buy and when and and I suppose Nicola are you seeing or do you think there's a problem there and people not necessarily knowing that this isn't the best deal for them we had Tracy talking about the fact that often you can see a perhaps a furniture shop offer you a deal in several stages but there might be a way to actually spend less in the in the long term by going to your bank and otherwise Yes, so I think when you talk about that kind of kind of high cost of credit end, I think women are something like two and a half times more likely to be using that type of facility to borrow. And I think it goes back to the themes we've talked about so far on understanding your finances holistically and financial education, because do people really understand what they're signing up to? Do people really understand what that interest is going to look like and what that's going to mean for them in terms of their amount of pay that's going to go on that kind of week in, week out. So I think this all comes back to better understanding of your finances, better understanding of how you can pay for things and the different tools. I think we've got better understanding the role of credit cards online. I think we've started to talk about that more and people now understand credit card and how that can help protect you online. But I think we've got so much more to do to help people understand the options they've got around borrowing money and actually what's right for them. Bridget, do you think there should be more rules on this? Because I have to say, as someone scouring these sites, often it comes up now as the first option, the default option. Say you want to buy a top, you break it down into, you know, X, it's only this much a week without really setting out what that means overall. Yeah, I don't think it's as transparent as it ought to be for consumers. And we've been arguing in Parliament that we need to look very closely at the legislation and regulations surrounding the emergence of this new kind of form of credit. Tracy? Well... I'm not sure it's entirely new. I bought my first TV from Currys back in 1997 on a monthly payment scheme. And I was, you know, very aware that it was going to cost me more. But it was a case of not being able to afford a lump sum. And so I do think that there is a role for these sort of kind of monthly payments or weekly payment schemes. However, I think it is about transparency and I think it is about creating better sort of knowledge base or an understanding around what it is that you're buying and what it will end up costing if you do it that way. But the issue is, is that there are people that just don't understand that there are alternatives out there for them. And that... I'm afraid, you know, it does come back to accessibility or reducing some of the stigma around banks, high street banks. And I certainly see different attitudes towards high street banks now than I I did when I was a kid. I mean, I'm a child of the 80s when Lloyd's Bank were offering uh, for seven year olds to take out bank accounts and you got a free kind of little money bank, which you put, you know, your coins in. And I think it was it. 
it wasn't HSBC, it was their their predecessor had the piggies and things like that. And I just you don't see those kind of offers now to for for youngsters in order to get them into the mindset of what saving is and what money is about and everything else. And so actually, I think we may have lost a generation having that understanding that they can just walk into a high street bank and that they're there to help you. Now, I suppose looking ahead, I mentioned in that introduction the fact that, for example, 41% of UK households could not last three months about their main source of income. We have a situation where, I mean, there's lots of uh, unpredictable events ahead, but we know further at some point it's going to come to an end, even if the roadmap goes to plan, jobs are going to be lost there. So I wondered, what do you think the best steps are if someone is trying to build up financial resilience? Because Bridget, as you touched on at the start of this podcast, lots of people don't think there's any space as it is to be to be putting that money aside. Nicola, what would your advice be? Um, so I, th- I think it's always kind of try to save something if you can, no matter what it is, just try little and often if you can just to tuck something away so that it is there. And I appreciate that, you know, as we've talked about for everybody, that's not possible for somebody where it's not possible. I think it goes back to what is going out. And does it need to go out and have a look at can any of that be reduced? And, you know, to Tracy's point at the beginning, some people are so close to it. And again, you know, it's often the women, isn't it? Exactly what is the price of that loaf of bread that week? And they're that close to managing everything that goes out of the door. But it is genuinely being on top of your finances and understanding where every penny is going and seeing if you can manage that in a better way. And if you have got borrowing and you are struggling go and talk to your bank, go and talk to a debt management charity, because we can look at things like consolidation, which can actually help with kind of reducing the overall burden and being honest about what the root cause of it is. And it may be in many cases, the amount of income coming in. But if it is other things such as gambling, which in many cases, people don't instantly kind of call out as being the core issue, go and talk to people because we can definitely help you. And there are kind of supports and, and charities to help with that. But also, if there are underlying vulnerabilities, we can put more support in place and we can help you. So it is go back to the financial education point and it's talk about it so we can help. And, and they'd be the two bits of advice I will provide. And I suppose, Tracy, I mean, we're talking about different sections here and clearly a, a group that at the moment feels they have nothing to put away. But I think there's also going to be a group, perhaps people listening to this podcast, young professionals who at the moment don't think they've got loads coming in, but also feel as though they are fairly financially secure in their current job and they don't think that's going to go away anytime soon and and perhaps want to spend that money on having a nice lifestyle, you know, going out. So do you think there has to be more about why now is the time to save if you're in that position and, and what you should do with it? Well, I try really hard not to be sort of kind of too lechery about it because I think it is important that you live life to the max, but you have to be conscious of what's coming up in the future. And I sort of, I've learned a, a lesson myself with my cancer diagnosis last year, thinking that my finances were in good order. And while they're in good shape, they're not necessarily in good order. And, you know, and I, and I think it's sort of kind of one of those things that I've sort of learned that lesson slightly too late. You know, I can't get, for example, life insurance. Well, I can, but not very not as cheap as previously or health insurance or anything like that and I think it's sort of kind of one of those things that when you're in your mid-40s you start thinking about but you never get around to doing it and everything else and I just think actually that we have to perhaps encourage some sort of 
better life admin, as I call it. You know, we're already good at social admin and physical admin, but it goes back to the point that Nicola was making at the beginning. We're not already good at, you know, the financial admin, the, the life admin. So I think we need to sort of kind of do a bit more about encouraging people to talk about it and think about it because all sorts of things can suddenly crop up that completely t- put your your own plans uh, out on a different uh, route. Bridget, do you agree with that? I suppose that particularly a lot of uh, younger age women can feel that even saving things like a pension, clearly <laughs> everyone tells you it's a good thing to do, but it's such a drop in the ocean when you're looking at the various hurdles facing, uh, you know, in terms of whether it even be a state pension at the point. I mean, I think Tracy's right that it's been it's been really hard year for so many people, hasn't it? And I you know, really feel especially for younger people who have not had the opportunity to to see their friends have often been you know stuck at home in you know shared shared houses or you know not not great accommodation or without access to outside space so I don't you know like Tracy I don't want to sound like I'm lecturing to people after what's been a really a really hard time but where it comes to pensions the the earlier that you start putting even a small amount of money away if you can do so the more that that will uh, that you'll gain over time from doing that and you know, it can seem very distant. It still seems reasonably distant for me. But as I approach 40, life does kind of come at you fast. The years do fly by. And even putting aside a little bit into a pension, and of course, many, you know, companies were making that contribution alongside you, it does start to add up. And the earlier you can do it, the better. But you know, I I don't pretend that it's easy. And you look at the situation in the housing market for a lot of young people. And it's, it's a challenge. And I guess that's where it comes to politicians as well to look at some of those broader solutions whether it's you know job opportunities the housing market skills wages I mean they're all the things that I think we need to grapple with I I also think that one of the things for women is that it is about a lack of confidence sometimes in actually understanding some of the terminology I mean Bridget's shadow treasury secretary so I I I would hope she understands all the different terminology but you know I'm not a daft woman and yet I still suffer from some of a lack of understanding about issues around you know SIPs and leases and you know all that sort of stuff and pensions and whether or not I should put all my pensions in one pot or different pot and you you just sit there and think oh it's too much I'm not going to do it it's just too hard and then bam you wake up one morning and everything's changed and it's just sort of kind of like I do think that we need a bit more plain English in some of these things and that might give people you know more confidence in grasping their financial affairs better. Nicola do you agree with that I suppose it's one of those ones where even when it comes to basic saving to, to someone who doesn't you know, fully understand the terms very much in Tracy's camp there that if you have an ISA where you you agree not to access the money for a year, two years, you will you will get more in interest. But lots of people do not feel as though they're in a place where they can really sign off money and know they're not going to have to need it in the future. So I wondered, you know, what misconceptions are there when it comes to our, our life admin and what we should be doing? So I think it's a really genuine, difficult question we need to face into. And actually, one of the trickiest things people face into when they're thinking about life savings is, do I save for my house? Or do I save for a pension? And which one should I be saving for? And how do I budget for each? And actually, one of the things we've been exploring is 
how could we start to bring together mortgage and retirement advice? Because they're two separate things. But actually, I think what would be helpful for us to face into as a as a kind of society is to think forward about how do you bring those two concepts together and help give people advice on how to save collectively for both? Because it may well end up being that your house becomes your retirement in some way. So I think it's really important that we start to bring those conversations together and think about how actually over the lifetime of your savings, that maybe we move away from completely locking down what's put away, but say for certain shocks or on certain occasions, a few times perhaps over your lifetime, you're able to access that cash should you need it, because you just don't know what life's going to throw at you. So I know that's something we've been thinking about, particularly through Scottish Widows, and it'll be something I think we need to start thinking more and more about you know, before COVID, but now after COVID and we look at the impact of the pandemic on the economy, it's probably going to be even more important. Now, talking a bit about building up financial resilience, but another thing I wanted to bring in here is when it comes to, I suppose, particular problems women can face on this, one thing that has risen up in the news agenda is coercive control, financial abuse. And it's something that I I believe, perhaps go to you first, Nicola, that banks are now taking more of an active role in trying to spot worrying behaviour. In a way, you could say, oh, we're seeing a rise in it. But in fact, is it just that we're getting better now at spotting it, Nicola? So I think it's probably fair to say we believe we have seen an uplift in it over the course of the pandemic. And actually, I think some of the stats coming out, some of the charity research coming out is indicating that it's happening more during the course of the pandemic when people's partners are losing their jobs. And then that sort of financial coercive control is coming in. So it's something we absolutely need to keep stay very focused on. I mean, we've spent a lot of time training our frontline colleagues to identify it. You're right. I think it's something we're better at identifying now, whether it's domestic abuse or whether it's economic abuse. And that's why we've got these pilots and this partnering happening with surviving economic abuse to help us to continue to refine our approach and get better at managing it. But it is really important, again, for the, for people suffering from domestic or economic abuse to come forward, because what we've done and evolved is our approach to helping these customers. We've got dedicated teams in the core centres in Newport, but also across our branches to help us with these situations. But then we've also got specialist processes. So a domestic abuse victim can come in and we can help them use different types of ID to set up a new account in their own name. We can set up addresses linked to PO boxes so that they're safe from their abuser so that we have these kind of processes now. We continue to develop and work on them and and work with charities and experts in it to make sure we're really getting it right. But I do think that you're right. Over the course of the pandemic, we have seen an uplift in this type of problem and, and people have been locked in with their abusers, which you know, it's frankly a horrific situation and we need to be there to help them. And Bridget, we have the domestic abuse bill and you previously worked managing a woman's refuge. So do you think the government's doing enough on this issue? I mean, I think it's really welcome that we've got a much better understanding now about coercive control and about the financial abuse that will often take place within abusive relationships. I don't think it was as well understood as it should have been when I was working in the sector a decade ago. Yet we would see women all the time who had either been forced to take on debt for a partner or were denied any access to bank accounts, were not given money or were given a very limited amount of money that they had to make stretch for the week often to provide for children. And that was appalling. I mean, absolutely terrible and would often go hand in hand with a range of other abuse. I think we have made progress in understanding that. I think there are big challenges around the support that's available to women right now. We have seen a reduction in the support that's there and I hope that can change. I mean, that's an ongoing discussion through the domestic abuse bill. I also think there is a really big issue the government needs to grapple with around universal credit, uh, which is paid to a household. And I think that puts women at greater risk, uh, both at the point of separation, but also I think risks making it harder for women to separate in the first place. Tracy, do you want to come in on that? 
Well, no, I mean, I bow to the knowledge and expertise of both Nicola and Bridget. And, and I mean, I was heartened when I went pre-COVID uh, to visit a high street bank who were t- telling me about the things that they were doing in order to identify this more. And I, I and I think it's a shame that during COVID, you know, the reports and statistics show that it has increased in prevalence. But there is definitely more in it in the domestic abuse bill. And I, I think that if there are gaps that still need to be filled as a consequence, then, you know, government ought to look very seriously at that. Now, just bringing this podcast to a close, I just wanted to end on, I suppose, next steps. And clearly it's a very wide spectrum of specific issues. We're talking about lots of things when talking about financial resilience. But I suppose first, um, Bridget, you've been talking about the fact that this can't all be done by the individual or industry. The government needs to play a role. Now we keep hearing about the fact we expect unemployment to go higher. So what do you think are the steps the government needs to take in terms of protecting against financial hardship? I mean, where it comes to the role of women within the economy, I think, you know, we've made tremendous progress and there's still a long way to go. And I think in recognising that women have a right to be in the workplace, that, it, you know, having a job is not something that's as an extra or, you know, it, which, you know, sadly, it's it's sometimes viewed in that way where it comes to women's incomes and women's right to be undertaking paid work. I think what I really want the government to do more of is to understand that differential impact of the pandemic on men and women. We know, of course, that men have suffered terrible consequences on the health side, uh, the terrible toll that this has taken. But I think we need to much better understand the different challenges that women will face, um, the need to look at whether childcare will still continue to be available, I think is one really pressing issue. Because without that, and I think we need to change as a country how we regard you know the importance of childcare for me childcare is should be an important part of our national infrastructure in the same way that we need public transport that we need broadband that we need a whole host we need roads we need childcare as well because it's absolutely essential for women's participation in the workplace tracy do you agree with that and any other steps you think that whether it's the government or private sector now, now need to take well i mean i think the thing is is that Bridget's right. We had made enormous strides in terms of supporting women in the workplace over the last decade or so. And it is a shame that the pandemic has perhaps shone a a really stark spotlight on the vulnerability of those strides, because actually what is quite clear is that they they had been made, but perhaps they weren't on particularly solid ground. And I, I think that, you know, we need to look to see whether or not we should be making these strides, but in a far more secure way for the future. So I think that's one aspect of it. But I hope that, you know, we do, as part of the the post-COVID recovery strategy, uh, look at the impact on women specifically and look at on, on some of these issues around finances and try and either reform how we work and have more blended workplaces, for example, which I believe is the phrase for part work from home, part work from in the office, and or we also make sure that we have better structures in place for childcare, which is, by the way, phenomenally expensive. And therefore, often, if you don't go into childcare, you end up not doing your job because you can't afford to do so. You know, so as a woman, that is. And I just think that we can take an opportunity from the dreadful things that have happened over the last year or so to make things better for the future. I suppose thinking ahead... We've had a wide range discussion. What do you think is the most important thing for our listeners when we're talking about building financial resilience? The lesson for me over the past year, uh, the learnings that I've taken is one, I shouldn't be allowed to buy anything 
off Amazon after a certain amount of time in the evening because they end up being a complete waste of money. Um, but two, I think we should spend more time thinking and, and looking into our long term future and, and what it means and what we need to put in place in order to to do that. Now, I appreciate that that is for the sector of society that has the means and the capability of doing that. And it's not necessarily those who are in more deprived circumstances who struggle to get to the end of the week. But I think that where you do have those means and the capability, you have to take responsibility for looking at it seriously and properly. Nicola? Yeah, so I think it's really important now, we're coming out of the pandemic and it's people who are starting to struggle, particularly after they've had periods of payment holidays, come and talk to your bank, talk to a debt management charity is absolutely vital. And if you were one of the really fortunate people who during the period of COVID actually continued to earn, has saw your day-to-day expenses reduced and actually have seen your kind of savings and the amount of money you've got available kind of go up, it's about thinking about that sensibly to build your future resilience because you still don't know what's around the corner. So either capitalise on what's happened and set yourself up successfully for financial resilience going forward. Or if you're struggling and it's an issue, get in touch with either a debt management charity or your bank early as you can to get some help. Bridget, you get the final word. I think that, you know, whilst it is clearly important that as individuals we think about all of these actions that we might take around financial resilience, I just think we need to be accepting and understanding of the challenges that a lot of people will face in that. It's just not so easy. And I suppose as politicians, what we can do to give people that financial resilience that, you know, I think the pandemic has really exposed some of the inequalities within our economy and in wider society so what we can do in the years ahead to build a society that doesn't have that imbalance within it you know growing up you know we didn't always have a great deal and you know whilst I was always shielded from it to a degree it does cause terrible anxiety and worry for families it really has an impact on family life and happiness And I want everyone, no matter where they are, to have genuine and meaningful choices in their lives. And that comes from being financially secure. And too many families don't have that financial security that they need in order for their children to thrive and have happy and fulfilled lives. So for me as a politician in the months ahead, I really want to be focused on what we can do as we recover and rebuild to make sure that we don't go back to where things were before and that we build a more resilient society and economy for everybody right across the country. Thank you, Bridget. Um, Thank you, Nicola, and thank you, Tracy. 